Thank you very much, Amanda. Uh, good morning, everyone. Again, thank you for braving the elements to come here with us. But honestly, I don't know if there's a better way to kick off the first Sunday of Advent than with snow. It's like a Hallmark movie. The formula is working, people. They know what works. So uh, we are so happy to see you. We are blessed to have you with us this morning. Um, if we've not met before, hi. My name is Corbin White. Uh, I'm a member of the pastoral team here at Midtown, and I have the pleasure of kicking us off here with our first uh, sermon in our Advent series. Um, and with that, I can already hear Mariah Carey kind of her voice drifting through the snowflakes this morning. But I actually have a different song in mind because I want to be the first person to officially wish you all a happy new year. So everyone, please sing with me. Should old acquaintance be forgot? Come on. And never brought to mind. Okay, we got a few people. Nice, nice. We also have some people who are very confused. And that is okay. Uh, so again, I, I know it's a little early. We're like, oh God, guys, we already have one whole month before, uh, before the new year. What is this crazy guy doing? Um, well, you'd be right. But funny enough, only partially. Um, you see the liturgical calendar, uh, the calendar that the church has used for centuries, actually um, puts the Christian New Year officially on the first Sunday of Advent. Now, this calendar is actually to help the body, the church, reflect on the life and story of Jesus throughout the year. And what better way to start with the life of Jesus? in his birth. So that's why I started singing. I hope it's all a little bit more clear now. Uh, it is after a, a long period of time, this season we call Advent, um, and uh, it's after uh, a time that starts after Pentecost Sunday, and it is called Ordinary Time. Um, hopefully your ordinary time has been anything but ordinary. Uh, but it is called that because in that time we reflect upon the ministry of Jesus. We reflect on on his teaching and after you know we have seasons like Easter where we reflect on his resurrection and Good Friday where we reflect on his crucifixion and all these other little notes the rest of ordinary time is kind of given to us to uh, just you know fill in all the the little things that we missed along the way uh, but now we're in Advent and Advent kicks off the Christian New Year with a reflection and celebration of Jesus's birth, God taking on flesh, literally stepping into the shoes of humanity, becoming so very vulnerable as a baby, as vulnerable as the kids that we just saw leave this room. Also, he could announce the coming of a new kingdom to show us a new and better way of living life and to bring together all who were far off from God. It is a time of mystery, for thinking of God becoming flesh has perplexed people for centuries. And I have the answer. No, I don't. Um, it is also a time of reflection, for we think about Jesus' coming uh, as a baby so long ago, but we also look forward to his second coming, the second advent where God will again make all things right and fully inaugurate his kingdom upon the earth. And finally, Advent is a time for wonder. It is a time to get all starry-eyed as we think about the nativity story and all its elements. 
It's a time to reflect on how God coming to earth was the ultimate way that God could say, I know how it feels to be human. It is a season of remembering how God empathizes with us. God not only loves us, but he likes us, and he knows how it feels to be in our shoes. But maybe, just maybe, these words do not describe your heart as we enter this holiday season. Maybe this wondrous reflection we are speaking of seems so distant or hidden from you. Maybe you've been through Christmas too many times for it to hit like it did when you were younger. Scott Erickson, an artist and Christian author, says this, For too many of us, the celebration of Christmas has lost its wonder. When reflecting on how we wanted to approach Advent this year, we had a thought. Maybe this loss of wonder has less to do with the songs on constant repeat, or the cold, darker days, or the general chaos that comes with the season. Maybe the reason that it has lost its wonder is because we have lost our true love, Jesus, Emmanuel, God becoming flesh to dwell with humanity. But how have we lost Jesus as a focus? He is the reason for the season. It is because, as James K.A. Smith, a favorite theologian of myself and a lot of members of our pastoral team puts it, love is a habit. It is like a second nature that propels us without us giving it much thought. And as the holidays are filled with things that pull our focus and form our habits, whether we are recognizing it or not. In our information-soaked age, we are bombarded with advertisements and information on the daily. These ads tell us all about how, uh, what we should be wearing what we should be gifting, how we should be living, and what the good life really looks like. And there is no season where the pull of advertising and consumption is stronger than the holidays. Smith uses a very helpful analogy to explain this phenomenon. Remember when you first started driving? Remember how much you had to think about every little action that you took behind the driver's seat? Remember to release the brake, now hit the accelerator, now turn the wheel, now hit the turn signal. Some of you didn't learn that one, actually, uh, but we're working on it. Change gears, etc. All these little micro details that had to come together in order for you to learn just how to make this gigantic machine go forward. Now think back on this week. Is there a drive that you can actually remember? Can you recall all the little motions, little actions you took, your thought process through the whole thing? Even on your way to church this morning, can you remember the drive? With the snow, hopefully you were remembering a little bit more than, than regular. As we become more experienced drivers, as we live and almost driving becomes a part of our very being, those deliberate actions become almost automatic. They have written themselves in our brain through study, through experience, through observation, to the point where it becomes second nature to us. Things we don't even think twice about. Smith argues that our love is the exact same way. 
when we are bombarded with advertisements, with messaging to turn our hearts in a certain way, it can train our hearts and minds whether we know it or not. And there is no place where it is stronger than in the West where we have been advertised to since we were children. It is like the water that all of us fish have been swimming in our entire lives. And it's because it has been there our entire lives that it becomes harder and harder to notice how it is changing our lives and our loves. And this is what we want to focus on this Advent season. We want to figure out what is feeding, directing, and reorientating our love unconsciously. We want to know what is forming us. And if these things are forming us to look more like Christ or Ralph Lauren, Lululemon, or Tommy Hilfiger. So let's see what has become second nature to us as we explore our first topic of Advent, peace. We're going to be talking about peace and ethical awareness this morning. Where our things come from is something that has been showing up in the spotlight more recently, especially with our generation. It has become easier than ever to see where your shoes or your sweatshirt was made, and if that corporation it's treating, is treating its workers well, um, if they are doing more to help the environment and leave a less of a footprint. However, that is not often, often the messaging we see when we go out shopping. Sure, they may try to entice us with an extra logo on a tag, talking about how this item was made from 15% of recycled material. But again, that tag is only there so it can be used in a way to market to us. They're hoping that we will buy from them because it will make us feel good. This would have been a couple years ago, but there was a commercial during the Super Bowl of all things. Uh, that kind of encapsulated this. It starred Will Ferrell and a few other SNL comedians. It was all about how General Motors had the best electric vehicle battery and how we could save the environment together. Huzzah! As long as we were driving a car from General Motors. Where do these batteries go after they're used? How long do they last? All Are they harmful? None of these questions seem to be answered in the advertisement. These messages of consumption ask us to learn and live in ignorance. Instead of asking where our goods come from, it invites us to believe in a sort of magic that all these garments arrive at the store with no moral conundrums and disappear when they are disposed of. Consumerism hides the fact that the American way requires consumption of both materials and human beings to keep the meat grinder going. It prioritizes the privileged over the exploited. Don't ask, don't tell, just consume. So how can we, as kingdom-minded people, as people who want to recapture the wonder of Jesus this season and navigate this world of consumption and still feel like we are forming ourselves after the image of the Prince of Peace, what can we do? Well, let's find out together, shall we? Diving in, I want to do an overview of something I'll call a theology of the marketplace. This will be just be going through scripture so we can find themes that arise when we start sorting through verses that speak about money and God's desires for our financials. We see all the way back in the Old Testament that God cares about where his people's money goes. 
As the Israelites are learning what it meant to be a covenant people in the shadow of Mount Sinai, God says this in Exodus 22, verse 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. Now, before this, the Israelites, I don't know how much capital they had. They were slaves in Egypt. So as God is reforming them, as he is making them into the covenant community, as he is trying to make them into a people that will reflect who God is and what his new creation was always supposed to be about, he needs to talk about a lot of things, but he needs to talk about how they handle their money. God here wants his people not taking advantage of one another, especially of those in need. He charges Israel not to see their neighbors as clients for business, but people made in God's own image who should be treated as such. Exodus 22 is filled with passages that relate to this idea of treating one another justly, whether directly, men directly mentioning money or not. Here God also says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. God also says, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Whether it is through monetary power, ethnic discrimination, or social class, God wants there to be just treatment of all people in Israel's midst. Those who are powerless are not to be taken advantage of for someone else's gain. As the people of God grow from nomads in Sinai into a monarchy and a kingdom, God continues to remind them that their neighbors, uh, remind them and their neighbors of what financial justice looks like. Hosea, the minor prophet covered by our own Justin Roberts just this summer, says this in chapter 12, the merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I have become wealthy. With all, uh, I'm sorry, uh, pardon me, I just left my place. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again. In this passage, God shows the irony of Ephraim, the ten northern tribes of Israel combined, saying that they are rich by using dishonest scales and means. Here God reminds them that their boasting has been heard by their God, and he is not pleased. He brings a message of humbling judgment, reminding them that he will humble them, bringing them out of their kingdom and back into tents if they continue to mistreat their people and their neighbor through their dishonest economic practice. We talk a little bit about this uh, in the prophet series, but through the exile, this is exactly what happened. The people of Israel continued to be unjust, so God allowed them to be conquered by another nation so they would be brought into exile. He returned them from said exile, but not until they got into their tents first. These dis the disordered desires of Israel and their turning their back on God was the theme of the Old Testament story. How can God remind the people of the world who he is and what he came to do in the midst of this? Well, I guess he might just have to show up in person. He comes to earth as a baby so he can show the world a better way. And boy, did Jesus talk about money. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees try to trap Jesus with a question. This is one of the things we read this morning. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? It is, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him, and he went away. You may have heard this passage mentioned already when people talk about money, especially when it comes to paying taxes. But in my opinion, to read this on such a surface level does a disservice to Jesus' words. For what Jesus is saying is that the things made in one's image should belong to the one whose image they bear. The coin, a stamped piece of metal made by God, give it back to the man who put his face on it. However, what shall we give to God? What bears God's image? Us, humanity. Jesus takes this trap set by the Jewish leaders and beautifully tosses it back into the Pharisees' faces or their Pharaoh faces, if I might say so myself. But the message is clear. Give back to God what bears his image. Give back to God the people he has made. Again, God is reminding his people that people, us, humans made in his image are what he desires. And like the Old Testament reminds us, he desires that they be treated justly. It is later in the same passage that we hear Jesus sum up the entirety of the Old Testament with two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. For what is more just than that? One more example, then we'll keep going. Later, Jesus goes into the temple. You may have heard this passage as well before, because he starts, no, I need this, throwing tables. Why? Because the salesman had turned the court into a marketplace. The sacredness of a worship space had become a simple place for commerce. He even mentions that they are preying on the widows and the poor, trying to get them to pay more for the smaller temple sacrifices, the one that they only could afford. But on top of this, this court, this space where all these merchants had set up shop was the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place that non-Israelites could come and worship in that day. If I was there at that time, firstly, they'd wonder if I was sick, because I'm a little pale. <laughs> but it would be the only place for me to come and worship Jesus. And unless you were an ethnic Jew, it would be the only place that you could come and do the same. Jesus, the one who came to pour his spirit out on both Jew and non-Jew, saw that the non-Jews could not worship his father because these vipers had turned the space into an idol of consumption. And because of this, Christ drives them out 
for they were not treating their fellow believers with respect nor dignity. So now that we've moved our way through scripture, collecting snapshots of this theology of the marketplace, we see what God cares about. He cares for just economic practice. He does not look at the privileged or the wealthy as above those who make their product or the ones who buy it. He sees only people made in his image equal. All he hears, and he hears the cries of the mistreated and the downtrodden. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the nativity narrative articulated this when she was pregnant with Jesus. She sang these lines in Luke. God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Now, I don't think there would be anyone who would disagree with me when I say that our God is a just God. I don't think anyone would disagree with me when I say that God wants us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, strength, and dollar and love our neighbors as ourselves in the same way. Even when we purchase goods, and we will talk a little bit more about how we can do this practically when we move into some application, but as I was reflecting on this, as I was thinking about how we, we approach this, the largest barrier I found, and I think the largest barrier that we will encounter when trying to be people who worship God with our money the thing that can truly interrupt our peace in the midst of ethical awareness is this, is this simple question. Am I making a real difference? When I find my coffee from a local roaster, when I find a shoe that is carbon neutral, when I go to the plaza and don't leave with a shopping bag, is what I am doing changing anything? When there are large entities, corporations that are dumping pollutants into our atmosphere and filling our landfills, is my effort simply the smallest drops in a very, very, very large bucket? The pragmatic argument is not something that I'm trying to downplay by asking this question, but I'm hoping that we may all find some peace in its answer. The effect we may have with our ethical practice in the world may not be something we ever get to directly see. Economics is a subject that is connected to several others, all worth our attention, but all complex, messy, filled with gray areas and points of disagreement, even between Christians. And I hope that you believe that this community is committed to trying to figure out these ethical questions together as we move forward in fellowship. But I hope that I can offer you some peace this morning before we leave this place. As the people of God, we have been called to be prophetic, not pragmatic. One more time, as the people of God, we have been called to be prophetic, not pragmatic. The kingdom of God that we belong to is not one led by pragmatism and some fancy Christian makeup. Simply look back at the passages we have read. God was never concerned with how effective his instruction was. He gave Israel the covenant so that he would, they would be his light, his example to all their neighbors of who God is and how the world was supposed to be, how it was supposed to operate. And that is our same instruction. 
The point of being formed into Christ is not to find good strategies that work. It is to die to ourselves so Christ may take our place. That does not sound like a pragmatic argument to me. Stanley Hauerwas, a theologian and Christian ethicist, and theologian Will, uh, William Henry Willimon, what a name, put it this way in their book, Resident Aliens. The Beatitudes are not a strategy for achieving a better society. They are an indication, a picture, a vision of the inbreaking of a new society. They are indicatives, promises, instances, imaginative examples of life in the kingdom of God. The basis for the, the, basis for the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount is not what works, but rather the way God is. Cheek turning is not advocated as what works. It usually does not. But it's advocated because it is the way God is. It is not a strategy for getting us what we want, but the only way to live life. Now that, through Jesus, we have seen what God wants. As kingdom people, as followers of the Prince of Peace, as people who have said yes to Jesus' lordship, we have seen what God wants for the world. We have seen this through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. God wants us to be like Jesus so the world can see him and him alone. He wants us to live like Jesus so the world can see how God wanted this earth to be in the first place. And Jesus was not pragmatic. He did not do things just because they worked. He did what he did to show people the Father, God. And as we work to be people of justice, mercy, and humility, as we do our best to follow the Prince of Peace, and as we navigate the complexities and the tensions of this world drenched in consumerism, what we are asking is that you commit to do the same. We are asking that you live a prophetic life, a life that leads people to God, not simply a pragmatic one. And now in the worst segue of all time, let's talk about how we can practice this. <laughs> Worship team, would you go ahead and join me up here on the stage? Firstly, we need to be people who embody sharing rather than consumption. Joseph Lear, a pastor and more importantly, a dear friend of this pastoral team, wrote an article relating to, a to this topic just last week uh, on his Substack, his blog. Not only did he quote our own Alex Farron in the article, uh, but he also articulated what it means for us to be ethically aware peacemakers. He said it like this, I don't want churches or church members to explain what they're doing as mere generosity. Even pagans are generous. He's quoting Paul there. I don't want food pantries to be thought of as the work of 501c3s and the preaching of the gospel as the work of the church. Rather, I want us to say, Jesus is risen, so let's share our food. There's no reason we can't explain all of our so-called generosity as the newest spirit-led iteration of having all things in common. 
I know you thought once Alex was finished last week that we were done. Well, that would be, we would be done talking about Mr. Spirit. But think again. The Spirit is the very thing that enables us to be prophetic in our kingdom work and to point people to God. And it is in this kingdom work where we can articulate not only our generosity, but our sharing. How do we explain to people our passion to be ethical shoppers? Jesus is risen, and he has called us to die and rise with him, even in our spending habits. When he came in the flesh, he came to show us a better way as we seek to be a community that does the Jesus stuff. We continually look to how the spirit he sent us is moving and leading where we put our card information and where we open our wallets. When all of us have sat down at a lunch party here at Midtown, if you haven't, there's one next wink, 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 hint, hint. We share that we want to be people like the early church themselves. The early church was known for their sharing rather than their consuming. I hope that Kansas City will say the same thing about Midtown Church and the churches in our area. I hope that they will say that we care for our neighbors so much that we think before we buy. That we do good research about where our items come from so that we can know what we are wearing or what we are eating did not come at the expense of someone else made in God's image. And when we are aware, when we put the care of others over our convenience, I believe that we will find God, friends. Joseph Lear says it best again. The church that has all things in common will always assume the prior action of God. God is always ahead of us. No matter where I go, you have always been. Our job is simply to notice what good works he has prepared for us beforehand. Find a way to share with your community and your neighbors this holiday, even in the smallest of things. Baking a loaf of bread, getting some chocolates from Trader Joe's and sharing them. And if you get asked why, just tell them that Jesus has sent you and he's called us to live differently. Second, when shopping ethically, do so within the confines of your means. As brands have found ethics to be marketable, it can become more and more expensive to try to find something that's carbon neutral or something that's fully recycled. Even fair trade food can cost a pretty penny. We know that everyone's budget in this community does not look the same. So we ask for the spirit to lead us. And we ask that we would invite him to reveal where each of us can start. I remember when I, when I started my journey, when I was challenged by this, uh, I just started with footwear. That was something that I felt like I could do. It wouldn't break the bank. Thank God my feet had stopped growing at that point so they would last a little, a little while longer. That's where I started. I don't know where you guys wanna start or where you've already started. But I hope that as the spirit continues his good work in our lives, that we will be able to, uh, we will be able to say that where we buy ethically is a start and never a finish. So we ask that you would find something this Advent. Maybe you find your coffee beans from an eth ethical brand and share it with your family or friends. 
Maybe you hit up a thrift store for new jeans rather than the plaza. Find where prophetic living and your means meet. God honors the effort of trying to be people of his kingdom, even when we don't get it right the first, the second, or even the third time. Dr. Joseph Lear again speaks to this in another article called Why You Need to Pray Your Way Through Black Friday. He says it like this. We can't withdraw from the world we live in. So if you're going to buy or you're going to shop on Black Friday, then shop prayerfully. Take one item that you buy and find out where it was made from, probably China. Then pray for the person or the people that made that item. Pray for the factory workers. Pray for the local truck drivers. Pray for the lowest level employees in the shipping company that carried it across the sea. Pray for the plane pilots and the semi-truck drivers on U.S. interstates. Pray for the receiving, company forks, uh, the receiving company's forklift drivers. Pray for the shelf stockers and the cashiers at the store you're buying it from. Pray that they'd all have the jackets and the bread that they need. And finally, thank God for what you are holding in your hands. Before we ourselves uh, conclude this service by entering a, a time of sharing together the Lord's Supper, sharing a time of worship and reflection, and then sharing the road on our way back home, I just want to offer a word of encouragement. We've talked a lot, to, about a lot today. But peace has been our focal point. The Prince of Peace, as Isaiah calls Christ, is who we seek together this season. And if you are still finding peace hard to grasp in the midst of consumerism, if the Prince of Peace feels distant, I want to leave you with these words from a group called The Brilliance. This is their song, I Heard the Bells. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to all. But in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song, peace on earth, goodwill to all. Then came the bells more loud and deep. Hope is not dead, nor does he sleep, for hate shall fail and love prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to all. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.